I have a good feeling about this. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. This is, on this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics critics alike to talk about a film that really means something to them, either something they grew up with or something that they connect to personally. Um, so normally that opens the doors to a wide swath of films uh, from you know big blockbusters to foreign films, romantic comedies to dramas and all over the all over the map. Uh, so it's my uh, it's my pleasure to announce that this is actually going to be the first in a series of episodes that we're going to be doing talking about the Star Wars saga, episode one, all the way to the rise of Skywalker. So we're going to be talking about a different episode, uh, a different episode in the Star Wars saga every month. And really, the whole thing is inspired by today's guest. I'm joined today by Kimberly Cook. Kimberly, welcome to the Crooked Table podcast. Thank you for having me. So as I was saying, I, you know, I broached the topic with you and we had talked about having you on the show and uh, you selected The Phantom Menace, which we'll get into in a little bit, uh, which was really kind of the, the impetus for this entire uh, series. So thank you for thank you for the inspiration, first of all. <laughs> Great. Uh, so uh, why don't you tell people listening a little bit about who you are, uh, what your role is in film criticism in general and uh, and where they can find your work? Uh, well, like I said, uh, I'm Kimberly Cook, and I hail from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Pittsburgh. Um, if you've ever seen the cult classics Slapshot or All the Right Moves, you know where I'm coming from. Uh, both of those classic films were shot here in my town. Um, and I actually had a small bit part in the uh, All the Right Moves movie. I was at a football game. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. But And I was uh, I was three. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was extra in the movie. So, yeah, it was, that was uh, an interesting, interesting time. But... Um, I work for uh, Monkey Fighting Robots and Papa Axiom, both, uh, doing some comic book criticism, some film criticism, and television criticism, and you can find my work on both of their sites. Uh, and that's actually how I met Rob. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was the movies editor for Monkey's Funny Robots for a brief time. I was doing some writing for them. And yeah, that's how we first connected. So, uh, definitely check out Kimberly's work over at Monkey's Fighting Robots and Pop, Pop Axiom. So it, it's we have a legit film critic in the house with us today. <laughs> I call myself a professional nerd. <laughs> there you go. Ah, that works too. Well, and that's the funny thing too. Like now nowadays, especially with the prevalence of genre fair, where everything is sci-fi or fantasy or superheroes. I mean, right now everybody's talking about Avengers and Game of Thrones, which both, you know, yeah. both fall in that camp. A professional nerd, like we might, they might as well re- rename film critics as professional nerds because that's really kind of part of the job description <laughs> now. Absolutely, absolutely. There's so much content, and you gotta you gotta absorb it all. And and happy to be a part of a platform that allows me to be part of the content that's out there too. So that's a lot of fun. Have you always been, uh, I've been a big fan of uh, sci-fi fantasy and all that other stuff, or is it just, um, you know, has it something that's really kind of grown on you over the years? Um, probably like it's kind of grown on me over the years. Um, I, I had some really good friends in, in high school who uh, have fueled my, my love of film. Um, and, and one of my best friends in high school was a, a huge X-Men fan. And, uh, you know, she was the one that I always went to all of the comic book movies with. And, um, you know, we, and we absorbed ourselves into that genre too. Like, you know, if the movie would come out, we'd go buy the, 
the graphic novels and we go buy the merchandise and the trading cards and the action figures and stuff. And, and we really immersed ourselves into the, the nerd culture. Um, so that I, that's, you know, probably like my high school, junior high days when I really started to get into the whole, I guess you, if you want to call it a nerd culture. Yeah. And it's funny, I think just like in the last, I mean, since I was a kid in the nineties and, and how that's really broken into the mainstream. I remember back in the day, like we were lucky if we got like a, a Batman movie and now every other month there's yeah. like Spider-Man Avengers and Venom, like everything, every character that you can think of, there's two Ant-Man movies. We live in a world where there are two Ant-Man movies. <laughs> yeah. instance. It's just, it's crazy how, how that's, how that's changed and how it's become, it's like, uh, such a pop cultural phenomenon on a global scale. And I will say, I'll probably get chastised for this, that, um, that two of the movies that really sucked me into the nerd culture were the two Joel Schumacher Batman films. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah. uh, Looking back on them now, they're so campy, but you know what they, if it's, if it's what uh, kind of birthed my love of, of comic book film and comic book uh, genre and, and, and immersing myself in that world, then, so be it. Thanks, Joel Schumacher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess we've already mentioned we're going to talk about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the Force. You believe it's this boy? He can see things before they happen. He can help you. The Force is unusually strong with him. He was meant to help you. Anakin! Come on to take off! Will I ever see you again? What does it hurt to tell you? Are you sure about this? Trusting our fate to a boy we hardly know? Anakin Skywalker, meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. I sense much fear in you. The boy is dangerous. They all sense it. Why can't you? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. That was a little bit of the trailer for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, written and directed by George Lucas. And I think it's safe to say this, it's it's close between Episode One and Episode Two for what is kind of, I guess, the most divisive of the Star Wars. And that's funny. Well, I, well, actually, now it's Last Jedi, too. It's weird how the Star Wars fandom has fragmented over the years. But when this came out, as even though people nowadays probably protest on this, this was a y- huge deal. And people actually loved the movie, I think, when it first came out. Like, I don't remember people coming out of it saying it was terrible. It even got good reviews uh, from critics at the time and things like that. So what was your, when did you initially see The Phantom Menace? And why is that the film that you want to talk about? Well, first of all, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace, which I think, uh, you know, looking back now, it's hard to believe that 20 years have passed since this movie has come out. But you mentioned about, you know, like the, the, the criticism behind, you know, how Star Wars fans have become so divided and, um, you know, they, they either love or hate, you know, the stuff that comes out. But 20 years ago, we didn't have the social media platforms that we do now. I mean, things like AOL and, and chat rooms and things like that were kind of just becoming really popular and really mainstream, where the, the outlet of people to express their either joy or their okay, anger uh, towards a film wasn't readily available back then. So I think um, 
that that kind of saved <laughs> the, the prequels from from being chastised as much as they are now. I will tell you that uh, at the time, I had actually just met my husband. We were both working at Toys R Us at the time, which was so, so fun. <laughs> um, and uh, he was a huge Star Wars nerd, still is. He kind of was one that kind of immersed me in that world. And, you know, these movies are coming out that, you know, we're, we're you know, hunting down the toys. And, and I actually worked at a midnight shift of uh, when the toys were released. So oh, yeah. the, the merchandising behind the movie, I think, really kind of sucked me in, too. That's the first time I kind of remember there being midnight showings. And we had missed the midnight showing because we happened to be at a concert in Pittsburgh that night and didn't make it back into town in time oh boy. to go to the midnight showing with our friends. So we were kind of bummed about that, but we saw it like the very first showing the, the next day. So of course that was definitely an opening day or type of movie, you know. And you know what? I I enjoyed it. I did have the opportunity though to read the, the novelization before going into the movie. Reading the the book ahead of time, I think, kind of opened my eyes a little more to the story, and I think I understood it better but it, it it was it was one of those movies that just it was action-packed it was funny it was cute but it was telling that story of a character that is so iconic in movie history mm-hmm. and, and 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 bringing us into who he was as a child and how he got to become part of a, a jedi training and it, it was just one of those movies where you just you're interested to know how did he get this this way so breaking into that, I think, uh, you know, you you just you get interested in it. And it was a good story. I, I, I do think it is a good story. I mean, you know, like I said, people chastise the movie now, but it was a good story. But it has its flaws. What Star Wars movie doesn't anymore? Mm-hmm. But overall, I mean, I, I enjoyed the movie. I saw it in a theater, I think, seven times. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, we we went a lot and, and you know, we we enjoyed the experience. Uh, of it. So uh, how about you? When did you first see it? Well, it's funny because I'm, I'm talking about Star Wars on this podcast quite often, but I didn't really, I don't, I I don't know. I guess, I guess I wasn't raised right because Star Wars was not really (laughs) part of my life until I think right before the special editions came out, actually. Uh, I remember seeing commercials for that and being like, huh, what's that about? That's interesting. And then my, you know, we went to the video store and they had the, I guess this was before they pulled them off the shelves, the original versions of the original trilogy. So I, uh, I think we got them all probably within a span of a week or so and, and I watched all three of those and loved them and then saw them in theaters because I, I don't know if you probably remember but they had A New Hope in January and an Empire in February and then Return of the Jedi yep. in March and A New Hope which was at that point was 20 years old made like 130 million dollars in theaters to special yeah. edition or something like that um, yep. And it's funny because I actually just saw it on a, at, a, at a theater this past weekend, a small like uh, social club slash speakeasy style oh. screening room thing had it playing in town here in Tampa, Florida, where, where we are. And um, and so I saw it on screen on the big screen for the first time since special edition. Um, so that was fun. Right. And uh, and then after that, you know, my brother is, is significantly younger than I. So we were getting the action figures and all that. So by the time Phantom Menace had come out, I was fully on board. I had the box set of the VHS for the special editions. And, uh, you know, we got a, we have a lo- also got a lot of the merchandise. I actually even remember having the screenplay of that movie, which, you know, the screenplay in that in, in Phantom Menace is uh, very probably one of the more flawed aspects of it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. <laughs> but so thinking back now, I was like, wow, I was so into it. My first email address was J-A-R-J-A-R-1983 at AOL.com. 
So I was like, I totally didn't, I I guess had no issue with Jar Jar. I actually thought he was pretty funny when I saw it the first time. I know he's now the pariah of the Star Wars saga. So I was, I know, so so, seriously, that's (laughs) a whole thing. Um, So, so I was completely bought into the whole thing uh, at the time. And I pretty saw, I think I saw it probably at least twice, two or three times in theaters, which when I love uh, something, when I, when I love like a, a character, a brand, whatever, I, I kind of buy into it completely. So yeah. I, I'm a Star Wars fan and that includes all of it. So inclu- I just consider, I consider Phantom Menace probably one of the, maybe the almost the black sheep of the Star Wars saga, but it's like, oh, come here. You're part of the family. I love you. You're, you're not, <laughs> you're a little scrappy or whatever. You have, we have our, our issues, but you know, you're still part of the, part of that world. So, um, Absolutely. that's, that's exactly how I, how I consider Phantom Menace. It's, uh, it's on the lower end of the scale for me as far as the the main saga, but it's still like there's definitely elements which we'll get into that I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Or like that little moment there that nobody really picked up on. Like there's little elements that I, I like a lot. All right. So the uh, the opening crawl, uh, I think it gets a lot. I think gets a lot of crap because of the whole trade federation and the, like the the, um, the taxation on the trade routes and all that like but star wars has always been political i just think people never i guess never realize it or has never made quite as overt um sure. so i i think part of what my where my my issue with the film and why it feels like it's discon- it feels to me kind of narratively disconnected from the rest of the saga is that in a lot of ways this is basically a prologue to everything else that, that comes afterwards, you know, if we're looking at right. the, the the main six, the Lucas saga, as one story, this is basically the the introduction of all the characters, and then episode two is where it really kicks off and shows the progression from film to film. I think. Right. Uh, do yeah. You, do I, you, I, I okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I think that the the significant time jump is probably part of why I feel that way. But I like right off the bat. I think the dynamic between Qui Gon and Obi Wan. That they're on the peacekeeping mission. They're supposed to be ambassadors for the Republic to uh, to sort out the the mess with the Trade Federation and Naboo. The contrast between Liam Neeson as uh, Qui Gon as the rebellious Jedi and Obi Wan as the very by the book, uh, you know, straight laced uh, Padawan. I think that that's a fun dynamic, and I wish that we got more of it in this movie. Actually, it's it's mentioned several times about the the things that. Uh that Qui-Gon apparently had done to basically get himself kicked out of the Jedi Council. Right. Um, but they were never really specified as to what he actually did that he got himself in trouble with. And and that elusive uh, bad boy attitude, for lack of a better word, I, I think really, uh, you know, rounded out his character. And, and I really would have liked to have explored a little bit more of that. And there, there might be uh, more of that uh, rebellious side that has come out uh, in some of the recent novels. I think there's a recent novel that came out that, uh, that revolves around the relationship between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. I haven't had a chance to read yet. That aspect of his character, I think I would have liked to have had a little bit more of that. Yeah, they it, it, they just don't have a place for it in this movie, unfortunately. And we don't get that, that much time with Qui-Gon. And like you said, I think in the, the comics or the animated series or whatever, they've alluded to little to things here and there, and they've had him show up. Um, but the fact that the only real, like, um, I guess, proper Jedi, like properly trained Jedi from this system of the Republic and the Jedi Temple and all that, that we see in the in the films before, prior to this is Obi-Wan. So to right off the bat be introduced to someone who's complete opposite of Obi-Wan, I think. And this is something that the, the, um, the sequel trilogy gets lobbed out a lot. I think that this 
the prequels uh, don't get credit for how they really do try to expand the world. And I think that's the kind of the uh, um, ongoing debate between the prequels and the sequels is that the prequels, yeah, they felt they, they, you know, they falter in execution in places, but there's a lot of expanse going on uh, from the original trilogy to the prequels, whereas the sequels are, you know, so far a lot, a lot of it has been, Hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, nostalgia trip, which, and I love, I love the sequels trilogy, sequel trilogies as well, but I think that's an, an interesting argument that honestly really slides a little more credit over to Lucas, who got so much crap from fans for, the, for these prequels. Uh, I think particularly, honestly, particularly the, the episode two with the, the romance thing, which is out, oh, of, out, of the pur- out of the purview of this episode, but, you know, just looking at the prequel trilogy yeah. as a whole. Oh, I think with the original mindset and doing these the the prequel trilogy was character development um and and like i said you know that's what made the story so interesting is yeah we're getting to see the history behind one of the most iconic characters in movie history you know how did he you know what training did he have where did he come from you know how did he get so angry so fast Mm -hmm. um and, and what made him you know turn to the dark side and 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 that development from child to teenager to young adult to, to becoming Darth Vader. But in the meantime, you know, you've also got the character development, too, because you've got, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who, like you said, is, is the straight-laced, you know, Padawan learner. He's, you know, just coming into his own, too. But then it, you, you watch him progress, you know, throughout this trilogy series and to become basically the wise old man he turns out to be in episode four. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, and then going with the... The, the sequel trilogy that, you know, we're working on now and, and you know, soon to, to round out here in December, it, it does have a lot more than nostalgia facts where, you know, we're, we're looking back and, and we are developing characters, you know, obviously we have had to introduce new characters to the series, but I, I really think that going back to the prequels, it was just laying a foundation to support the original trilogy that we all love so much. I like the uh, so I like the 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 way that explores the Jedi and expands on the fact that there are different types of Jedi that relate to uh, the code in different ways and the Council, which we'll get to, and all of that. And then right off the bat, so you meet the you meet the Jedi uh, Obi Wan and Qui Gon, and then you also right off right from the jump get a little Darth Sidious, and I think that is also very telling, especially considering what we're. I guess now kind of expecting from the rise of Skywalker where he's going to play some kind of role in there. I, I, I love that in the first few minutes of this movie, episode one of the saga that he's established right out the gate as, uh, as the big bad. Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. And that, that uh, I, I do agree with you where I think it's great that we kind of jumped right into that, that yeah, we, we've got the bad guy here and we're going to introduce you to him right off the bat really mm-hmm. quick. And then, you know, there's always that mystery is who he really is. And, you know, of course, you know, as fans, you, you figure it out, you know, throughout the film, you know, you know, who he actually is. Um, but realizing that he was a puppet master throughout this whole thing. And definitely it, it shows in this particular film, you know, what kind of a puppet master he really was with, with Padme. He is the, the Phantom Menace of the title. That's the... You know, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, absolutely. um, So, so, you know, we're introduced really quickly to the Jedi. We're introduced really quickly to Sidious. And then we get what I think is a really fun 
uh, action sequence, sort of a mini action set piece on the ship with the Jedi versus the droids. And, you know, yeah, the battle droids are not really that, that much of a threat. I guess it's, <laughs> I always see it as like, you know, they're, they're, they're more, they're more of a threat because of the sheer numbers and the volume of them than really uh, the, the actual inherent power of them. Like, you know, uh, you can consider zombies, like not the fast modern zombies, but like the old school zombies <laughs> where like, yeah, you should be able to just like throw a rock at them and knock them over. It's kind of, but they're surrounding you. What are you supposed to do? So I think, you know, uh, with the, the battle droids, I think Lucas leaves it open for, for um, comedic effect as well with the, with the battle droids, but also leading into why they might want to, you might want to think about upgrading to clones at some point. Cause there's only so far you could take with these guys. Yeah. They were, they were just a basic machine is all they were. And they were just this crude robot. And you know, they, they were stupid. I mean, oh, they, yeah. They, they they looked at each other, you know, inquisitively and and you know, as inquisitively as a robot can, I guess. But, you know, they they had very basic uh, you know, speech patterns and they, they didn't think rather quickly. So yeah, they they were a pretty crude uh weapon. <laughs> that they were using so well to the point that they have to expand on that in the sequels you get the super battle droids and all that but i love the destroyers i think that's a really cool idea for uh for uh, an mm-hmm. enemy for the for the jedi to fight and i love a lot of the imagery in in this opening sequence with um when the uh dioxys goes off and uh you see the lightsabers like in the smoke as they're coming out of the room and and Qui-Gon burning the through the blast doors with the music swells up, which we'll obviously mention John Williams at some point here. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's, you know, right off the bat, I think you, you're getting inventive uses of the Jedi's powers that you haven't seen before that you wouldn't even think, oh, yeah, that's right. They should be able to just burn through a blast door if they really need to. You know, I, I, I love right. I love all that stuff. Cutting to the blast the, the door, I, I think, was was really uh, kind of fun and, and, and different. And, and yeah, like you said, it, it's not something you really think of, but. Uh, but yeah, definitely like using the smoke with, uh, you know, the, the Jedi coming out and you, that's the first time you see those lightsabers lit, mm-hmm. you know, in, in episode one. And, and it's just like, yeah, that that's like your payoff almost. It just, it was, there's just a very cool moment. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's, it's a great, it's a great image to introduce these, uh, like if this was, if you're watching these movies chronologically, if this is your introduction to a Jedi, you're, you're really you're really into it at this point because yeah you you get the sense for uh for just how just how powerful they are and how they can employ that in different ways you like get a little bit of the the force run here when they when they zip out of the out of frame and then um towards the end with the lightsaber battle you get the force jumping and things like that like they, they really um they re- he really makes a point of illustrating everything that they can do when they tap into the force. Um, but the sequence also introduces one thing that is actually honestly one of my pet peeves with this film particularly is that I don't really like Obi-Wan in this movie. Like I find him like he's really annoying. He's really kind of obnoxious. And I and I think that's probably intentional because if we uh, in the next film you see that this is generally how Lucas thinks that adolescent men are. Because uh, Obi-Wan's supposed to be, I guess, about 20, early 20s, maybe. So it looks almost where Anakin is in the next one. And um, yeah, just, and that's a big bummer for me because I love Obi-Wan in pretty much every movie other than this one is personally one of my favorite characters. And McGregor is great in the part. So I guess it's just cool. the the role, like Obi-Wan just gets kind of short shrift in this movie until the end. Yeah, and, until he kind of has to right. grow up 
for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's almost like a loss of innocence um, kind of thing uh, on Obi Wan's side of things. Well, yeah, once he once he uh, basically has to step up, become that that master that he needs to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he's he's very uh, he's very critical of a lot of things that Qui Gon does with Jar Jar and with Anakin and things like that. So we mentioned Liam Neeson as Qui Gon. We mentioned McGregor as Obi Wan. Uh, so your our introduction here, also early, pretty early on, is uh, Natalie Portman as Queen Amidala. The makeup, the costumes, the accent—it all looks cool. But what oh. what do you what do you think about this character? And I guess to to more broadly comment on um, the whole the whole decoy uh, ploy that you know is really kind of Amidala's thing, I guess. I mean, uh, having a decoy, I think, is is smart. Um, you know, obviously right. with the the trade war that that her her planet was or was in and her state was in. You know, the the decoy I think was was kind of a fun aspect to it. it, it when I saw that, I kind of went back to Aladdin. Mm, okay. Um, thinking back to to Princess Jasmine, you know, she's somebody who she's curious about you know what's going on outside of those palace walls, and you know her Padme wanting to go into. Uh, you know, the, the towns on Tatooine just to explore and to see what the planet was like was something that royalty just doesn't do. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of went back to the whole Jasmine thing where she's, you know, walking out through the marketplace and she doesn't understand, you know, how the how marketplace works and, and what the commoners are doing. And I, that's kind of an analogy that kind of stuck with me. Um with her being, yeah, you know, she was curious, you know, Padme was curious about, you know, what goes on on these desert planets. You know, obviously she'd never been in a desert planet before. Um, and Padme, it, 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 I think she doesn't get enough credit for the position that she's in because she's been essentially supposed to be 14 and suddenly in charge of a planet. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she has to kind of basically learn on the job. And she's so she's very susceptible to man manipulation from, I don't know, a Sith Lord that happens to, to <laughs> yeah. have her ear throughout every step of this. Um, but she also, you know, she, she uh, clearly has her heart in the right place. She's really trying to do the best job that she can for her people. And then within the fact that, you know, I guess part of the Naboo culture is the makeup and the, the crazy hairstyles and the, the, you know, the really ornate dresses and things like that. The fact that she, in a way, kind of weaponizes that so that she can slip around undetected so people really never know what she looks like, uh, except Kira Knightley, who's, who's in a lot of those scenes as right. Amidala. And I think that, uh, yeah, I feel like that gets lost in the shuffle a little bit when it comes to to Padme, who honestly is kind of g given a disservice more as, as the trilogy goes on, is given kind of less and less to do. Um, this is, I've actually, there's a, there's a podcast that I really love called Blank Check, where they do, they, they started initially as a Star Wars podcast, so I've been listening to their, their first few episodes for the, for, for the first time, and they have uh, several episodes in The Phantom Menace, and they mention in there how, I think, Lucas, or someone within their, the, the production has said that Amidala is really the protagonist of this movie, and I think, I think, uh, you know, you, you really see that, like everything is her mission. That's really at the center. That's really driving the story forward. And all the other characters, the Jedi, Anakin, and everything is really kind of circulating around what Amidala, uh, what Amidala sets out to do and what her, what decisions she makes. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It does kind of revolve around her and her, her battle with the, the trade federation. Right. 
And it's like, oh, we gotta leave. We gotta leave the planet because they're they're gonna make you sign the treaty. Okay, we need to we need to go back to the planet. And it's her decision to go back to Naboo and leave Coruscant. All of that. So um, so yeah. So I I, I like the introduction with her, and uh, you know you could really quick apart the performances in these movies. And I, I think in this one, it particularly Lucas was so focused on the, uh, the effects side of it and really pushing that, that maybe he could have gotten better performance out of the, uh, out of the actress for the most part throughout the, the, this cast, especially, but yeah. the, the, the characters are there on paper. Like the ideas are there. Like, and that's the thing why I, I get kind of irritated when people dismiss the prequels uh, out of hand, because I feel like, there, there's so much, there's so much interest, there's so much, there's so much to them, you know, like the design of them, the, the, uh, the politics, the themes, the stories behind everything that he's trying to get across. It just doesn't a hundred percent get there, but you have to admire the ambition with everything. I mean, and just the design of Naboo alone, like the city, the ships, the, the, uh, the Ganga where the, where the Gungans live and all that, like the, it's really, it's really gorgeous, like, uh, visuals. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think uh, ILM, I think, was, was coming hot off of, I guess, Jurassic Park? Am I, am I doing my timelines right in my head? Where I think that they were just so gung-ho with this new technology that they really wanted to explore what they could do with these new planets and these new worlds that they couldn't do with the original trilogy. You know, the effects obviously weren't there back in the 70s and early 80s. That mm-hmm. um, I think they were just kind of excited to see what can we create? And what they created was gorgeous. I, I think you you could also really see the limitations of that, though, too. And that's the that's the perfect segue into Jar Jar, yeah. Jar, Jar Binks, who yeah. at the time we were like, oh my gosh, this character is not there. And but you can the seams are so apparent. The it's yeah. very obvious that the actors are having trouble uh, playing off of you know Ahmed Best with the with a you know a leotard on or whatever they had and i think i think i'm best was actually in the scenes but he had like uh you know uh, a headpiece on i think because jar jar is supposed to be taller right. and things like that but the he just it, it, that that's one element of this movie that does not hold up like when it's all cg later on with the battle droids and the gungan armies like that's fine it's very i mean it looks almost like a video game cutscene, but oh, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't impact the film that much because I think they knew at that, even at that point, that they could, they would be much easier to just render everything in CGI rather than try and integrate, which is why all the CG characters are in their own little battle where everybody else is doing their own thing. Um, so, what are, what are your thoughts on Jar Jar as far as the visually, and then also the, the, the way the, the character is played? And, like, obviously, there's a lot to talk uh, since this movie came out of the, the kind of racist caricatures with the, the Newt Gunray and Watto, and especially Jar Jar Binks. What's kind of your, I guess, your take on that? God bless Ahmed Dad. <laughs> um, well, yeah. You know, that, that, that poor guy got so much crap uh, for, for his portrayal of Jar Jar. And, and, you know, I always like to say, hate the character, not the actor. Right. But um, with Jar Jar, I think what, what they were going for was, was their comedy aspect. Um, you know, we weren't introduced to. I mean, with the original trilogy, we, we had the Laurel and Hardy, uh, 3PO and, and R2-D2 that, you know, they, they provided our slapstick humor where, you know, we did have R2 fairly quickly in the movie, but we weren't introduced to, to 3PO until, you know, a little bit further in. 
where I think Jar Jar was supposed to fill the comedic role. Where, yeah, you, you still got a sci-fi action movie, but you, you have to have that little humor element, too. Um, but I think it just kind of went a little over the top. This, you know, his speech being, you know, kind of silly. Obviously, he's not all that bright. You know, the, the clumsiness, and that's how he got kicked out of his planet. You know, I, I think was maybe a little over the top. But I think, uh, you know, Lucas kind of took that and, you know, turned the volume up to 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of where he got the criticism from it. You know, I think if he would have maybe dialed him down just a little bit, Jar Jar probably wouldn't be as chastised as he is now. Um, you know, as for the rest of the Gungans, you know, um, you've got uh, oh, Boss Nast. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness, Boss Nast. Um, another character that I just dot up to 11 you know the, the shake in the head the spitting everywhere and and you know just i don't know that's just one of the characters that i just did not care for <laughs> well <laughs> no i mean no i i agree i agree with you and i like and that's the frustrating thing about about this this you know this trilogy but more so this one than the other two honestly is that um I, I like what they're going for. I like what he's trying to do with Jar Jar. He's trying to have the uh, the kind of Naboo commoner who just wrapped up in this whole thing, how he's affected and sort of be the, the audience surrogate. Like, whoa, Jedi, what? How did this happen? I was just walking around, hanging out, and now all of a sudden I'm, I'm following a Jedi around. I have a life death. That's the other thing. He's basically kind of following uh, Qui-Gon around as like a pseudo-slave being like no no me since you know the, the life dead and and all of that it's like right. there's, it, a, there's a lot of that that's i think and i and i think with the life that i think they were really kind of trying to make jar jar the chewbacca of this trilogy right and it just ugh, it didn't work no, no. <laughs> it just did not work it's fun. um you know especially with the whole life dead thing i think was kind of the, how they were trying to tie it together mm-hmm. and i just it didn't didn't quite work that well no. it's not your lovable pet you're not your your lovable your lovable puppy Wookie that wants to, you know, come around and 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 he's he's interesting. Jar Jar's annoying. <laughs> he's, he's the annoying neighbor kid who just won't go home. Right, but it's and that, that's the other. The funny thing is that a lot of people that grew up with this movie, I guess, who are much younger, probably have a completely different take. That's the thing with the prequels, like. You know, I, I, he's so focused towards the younger audience, like the kids, and he's also the the vehicle through which you get like poop jokes and fart jokes and all that other like yeah. all that other stuff. Um, that that yeah, I, and it's funny because I remember uh, a friend of mine because I was in high school when this came out, and I remember he yeah. was like saw an image of oh this really cool character Jar Jar Binks, thinking he was going to be like the Chewbacca, and then when we saw the movie, it was like wow this is not at all what we were expecting. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you you think that he they could have done something interesting where he could have been a warrior instead of a, a bumbling general kind of by accident uh, mm-hmm. in the final set piece. So yeah, so I dumb luck. <laughs> Pretty much. One thing I did want to mention, though, is that I like the, uh, the even though Jar Jar is like bumbling and mumbling, muttering his whole way through it, the, the trip through the planet core, I like so, some of the, the thematics that that brings up talking about um, 
Obi-Wan mentions that the Gungans and Naboo have are, are a symbiont circle. Symbiosis comes up later on with the midi-chlorians. Uh, the theme about there's always a bigger fish and then how the, the kind of the issue that they see Darth Maul as the villain, but it's really Sidious. It's like they don't even, you know, kind of the master that's pulling the strings behind the whole thing. Like little, little yeah. tiny touches like that. I'm like, all right, Lucas, that's very on the nose, but you're, you're trying for something. And I, I, I see what you're doing mm-hmm. and I appreciate that. Yeah, I never thought of the bigger fish thing with the with the with Maul and Palpatine. That's actually a really good point. Yeah, exactly. Because they don't, you know, that's they don't even know uh, that he exists until I guess episode three. Really, they don't really confront right. him at all. Um, he's he really he blends in really well. I guess I don't know. Um, that's that's. <laughs> do you, do you think this is a good? Here's a question that I, I had been wondering. Do you think people like if we hadn't had the original trilogy before this? Do you think anyone would have been f- fooled that Sidious and Palpatine were the same person? Because he doesn't even really try to hide it. Or, or I guess, or is it more of a dramatic irony thing that we're supposed to see that right see right through that? I think if you were going into episode one completely blind without knowing a whole lot about the Star Wars saga in general, I, I think people probably wouldn't have picked up on it. Okay. Um, because they probably weren't looking for it. Um, you know, as, as Star Wars fans going into going into this, I, I think you know you kind of you're looking for those little things. You're looking for those little hints, and uh, who is he really? Okay, yeah, that's got to be him, you know. But it's never really confirmed mm-hmm. until episode three. Um, but you know, obviously, you know you you've got your fans who who dig in, and yeah, you as fans you figure it out. Um, but I think going in, if you were completely blind, knowing nothing about the the, the saga at all, I think that probably would have pulled the wool over your eyes. Right. I uh, I also think it's interesting the parallels, and I noticed it watching it more closely recently for this podcast. The parallels between Sidious and uh, Amidala, and that they're they're you know they're both obviously politicians. They both kind of have this double life that they're leading, and just I I, I feel like little things like that really lend credence to the argument that this is Amidala's story, and not really mm-hmm. not really Anakin's or Obi Wan's or anybody's. Uh, and so uh, I li- I like that that dynamic and the fact that um, it, it feels more balanced in that way. Yeah, I have to agree with that one. Yeah, that, that's something I hadn't thought of either with, with the parallels between the two. But that, yeah, you bring up a really good point. And, and you know, some people, sometimes people lead double lives and you kind of have to. And, um, you know, it, with, with these two characters, I think uh, I think that really, you know, fleshes out who they really are and, and what they're about. Uh, how do you feel about some of the the more fan servicey moments? And I'm thinking specifically of R2s. And that's the other thing. I feel like this movie, in a lot of ways, kind of was the birth of fan service because it was a prequel to essentially the biggest film franchise of all time. You get all those little moments of oh, Anakin Skywalker meet Obi Wan Kenobi, or oh, what's, yes. the, what's, what's his number R2D2. <laughs> it's almost yeah, it's yeah. almost uh, like space balls, like leaning out to the audience. Like, did everybody get that? But my husband likes to say that, you know, that the, the line of, you know, Anakin Skywalker meet Obi-Wan Kenobi is probably one of the biggest lines, movie lines that, that uh, quote that, that came out of this trilogy mm. that, that says so much about the trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, but, it's but really yeah. is emblematic of his approach, I think. And, and, and as for the fan service, um, especially, I think they, they really milked the fan service of the droids, but like you said, you know, what's this droid's name? You know, that little, that little droid did it. You know, he's R2-D2. 
And then we finally get to meet 3PO. Um, you know, and, and it's something that uh, I, I picked up on too is, you know, the, these two droids, you know, follow us throughout the, the saga. They're his and hers. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know that R two was was Padme's, and three PO is Anakin's, and and it's like, you know, mom and dad got together, and so did their droids. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's no, a good way <laughs> of looking at it. <laughs> it's it's also, I mean, it's, it's it's a Star Wars tradition too to have three um, PO and R two in all of the the main saga movies. I think they're the only characters that are in every single one. So so then they they get away from uh, from Naboo. They had to they wind up plan- ending up on a uh, distant planet run by the Huts called Tatooine. Uh, it, it's it's always it's also fun. Tatooine always feels like home base for this entire franchise because that's the first planet that we really see uh, in the original in the New Hope. And because it's connection to the Skywalker lineage, what are your thoughts about? Uh, I guess the return of Tatooine, and then I guess we'll get to uh, Jake Lloyd as Anakin. It, it, it does kind of bring things full circle, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know Luke grew up on Tatooine, you know, and now we're we're figuring out that Anakin grew up on Tatooine too. So I mean, it's, uh, is there fan service behind it? Sure. Um, Jake Lloyd. <laughs> what can we say about I know movies? I feel like I've um, kind of purposefully been put in that's the one major performance we haven't well and then Ray Park but we'll get to him for being a very young and very vanilla uh, and very green uh, actor you know he's how old was he when he did episode 1 10, 11 something like that, yeah. um, like that. I mean as a child actor I mean being thrown into um, not only the uh, a movie that they knew was going to be huge, but putting the pressure on this kid to, to basically develop a character that we is so iconic. I, I have to be young Darth Vader. You know, I, how does, how does that, you know, weigh on his shoulders? Was his performance bad? Uh, yes. And no, he had his moments, um, both good and bad. Um, but like I said, what can you expect of a kid that, that young with right. with that kind of pressure? Did the screenplay kind of play into him being a little off? Maybe, but for I think for what he had to work with, I, he did okay. Well, I mean, what are your thoughts behind Jacob? I mean, I I don't. I mean, I I do not think he gives a good performance in this movie. But I, it's also he. Uh, it's really first of all, it's really hard to find a Haley Joel Osment. You know, child actors in general, you have to kind of grade on a little bit of a curve. And even if you had someone like Haley Joel Osment or like, uh, I don't know, um, you know, Dakota Fanning or whoever was really precocious and and really delivering uh, amazing performances at the ages at the age of about 10. Even they couldn't sell lines like, are you an angel? And like things like that. You know, yeah. it's like this. The, Lucas does not how to know how to. And, and that's very obvious in these in the prequel trilogy. He does not really know how to write romance and he does not really know how to write <laughs> children. And, right. I, you know, it's unfortunate. I think Jake Lloyd, first of all, had ridiculous uh, pressure to try and and play this role and knowing that we were going to see, I mean, it's all there in the teaser poster where he's walking away and you have the, the, the famous uh, Vader, the Vader shadow right behind him. Mm-hmm. It's like he literally had, he was literally standing in Vader's shadow and there was no way he was ever going to meet that. So was he terrible in this movie? Yes. Did it, did he deserve to have it basically ruin his entire life? Not really. I mean, right. you know, again, like you said with Ahmed best, 
hate the character, the performance, whatever, not the actor. Don't like go around yelling wizard at him while he's apparently that's something that happened to him, like going to high school and things like that. Like uh. it was a torturous thing for him, this movie, especially being that it was the first Star Wars movie in 16 years and it was this huge phenomenon. It's still towards the top of the box office charts. Uh, and I think his only real the major movie that I'm aware of that he did before this was Jingle All the Way, which is another right. guilty pleasure that I'll have to talk about on this podcast at some point. Because <laughs> um, you know, I've actually never I've never seen it. I'm going to have to put that on my list. <laughs> you should check that out. It's kind of... <laughs> So Jake Lloyd, yeah. So not not great, but not his fault. Mostly, I lay that mostly on on Lucas, and uh, does not really have chemistry. I guess if you want to call it that with Natalie Portman, uh, but even the fact that I'm saying they don't have chemistry feels weird already. But I mean, it's clear that he's trying to lay, like Lucas is trying to lay the groundwork for what comes next for them. And these are Luke and Leia's parents and that kind of thing. Do you think that's a strange decision to have the, this movie to, first of all, portray Vader as a nine-year-old, but already kind of uh, the, the way that, that, that his relationship with Padme develops? Do you think that's a weird starting point? Or do you think that's also like it's, it has a certain novelty of it that we don't usually see this, this kind of dynamic played out on screen? It was awkward. Um, you know, the age difference, yeah, the, with, with the age difference, I think really uh, threw people for a loop too. But yeah, you, you've got this much younger little boy trying to flirt with uh, a teenage girl, and he is so obviously flirting with her, trying to. Yes, yes, and it's so going over her head, and she's just oblivious to the whole thing. She could care less that he's trying to be cute and funny with her, and but yeah. I guess you kind of had to lay that little bit of a groundwork of, okay, this is where they met. Right. So, okay. So they, they meet Anakin, Watto. How do, what, what are your thoughts on Watto real quick? I think he's, you know, is it a, is it a racist caricature? Eh, a little bit. Is it still kind of a fun character to watch? And uh, I, I think so. I think it's mostly the design and just the, the gruffness that we, that we get from Watto. What are your, what are your Watto thoughts? Yeah, I mean, when when you think of you go to your neighborhood garage, and this is going to come off as something horribly stereotypical. Um, you, you go to your neighborhood garage, and, and I'm you know, going to screw this up and say grease monkeys of the neighborhood, where they're they're the the, the mechanics of the, of the neighborhood. They're the ones selling you the auto parts. They're the ones who um, really do get down and dirty and, and get into the the parts and the 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 repairs and and the things that you know you obviously don't want to do yourself. Um, so that gruffness, I think, really did come off in Watto. Um, so I'm not quite sure if that's what Lucas is really going for. I mean, that's kind of what I took out of it because mm-hmm. yeah, I, I live in a, I've got those neighborhood you know garages down the street where the guys you know the guys are filthy and they you know <laughs> you know they're that that type of guys who are running the joint. You know? Right, right. Um, so you. That, that's kind of where I went with that, where, yeah, okay, I kind of get where he was going with that. Watto didn't seem like the type who was actually going to get dirty. He was more or less making Anakin do all of that. Right. Which is how he became so mechanically inclined. And, and you know, he, he mentions in episode two, he's going with the, the saga here, that he he always liked to fix things. And, um, you know, it, it's simple when you think something's broken, you fix it, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I do think Watto's character, I think kind of, embodied a little bit of that in, in my mind 
what like what are your thoughts on on Watto? Generally, I like Watto. I think he's um, he's kind of a fun character in this, and mm-hmm. I don't. I, and he hasn't nearly been considered as problematic as as like as we were mentioning Jar Jar. So um, right. Oh, nowhere near. Yeah. Nowhere near. Uh, then we get into so and Anakin really doesn't like sand. <laughs> Sandstorms are dangerous. <laughs> so I like that they establish that right out out the gate, and it plays into why you know they would hide uh, his son on Tatooine because Anakin's clearly not going to go back to a sand planet. Um, so uh, yeah, the uh, the Sith Lords is trying to reach out to them. Try, they're they're trying to uh, bait them with a distress call from Naboo. So then they go back and they meet Shmi Skywalker. And I think Pernilla August is actually pretty good in this movie, considering the the material she's working with and providing that kind of strong, silent uh, maternal figure for Anakin, where we we kind of get a we get a sense of his uh, his value system and, and like the stability that he had prior to being swept on on this adventure towards uh, Jedi knighthood. Like, I think she always kind of knew there was something special about mm-hmm. her son. Um, you know, and that's, that's something I think has always been in the back of her mind where, yeah, she, she wanted to raise him right and, and raise him, you know, as straight in, in the mind as possible. And, and she kind of had to by being a slave by being one of Watto's slaves. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think she always kind of knew there, there was something, he was destined for greater things. He, he wasn't destined to remain a slave. Um, and then when, uh, the Jedi come into her life, um, you know, obviously, you know, chance i guess you could say um she kind of knew this was this ticket out um so i think she was very curious when when qui-gon arrived um you know and and she was a little you know inquisitive with him you know what are, what are his intentions but she pretty much really let, let him go um and, and let anakin basically take off with the, this stranger who only had come into her world, you know, a day or two ahead, uh, before then. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and there's the whole, there's the element that, you know, she doesn't really, in this movie kind of sidesteps. Okay. There was no father. She can't explain what happened. What the hell does that mm-hmm. mean? Were you just all of a sudden, Oh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. Uh, and I sense that I, I kind of, my gut tells me we're going to learn more about that in episode nine, that they're finally going to provide a little bit better, of a better answer there. And I maybe canonically in the films, at least confirm that, uh, that Palpatine was, you know, started the whole Skywalker lineage to begin with. Cause I know that's something that has been alluded to in the novels and things like that, but it's obviously never been really readdressed in the films, uh, since here where she basically dodges the question. And, um, I, I, you know, I think that's a good, a good way to wrap, uh, Palpatine back into the, the, a film that has literally has Skywalker in the name of the film. Yeah. It would definitely bring, bring things full circle. You know, she says there was no father. Okay. There, all right. But there just wasn't a father during his childhood right. to have some, a male figure in his life during his upbringing. Right. Is there a father? It's like be somewhere along the line. Like this, I, exactly. It's like, sh- sh- Shmi, that's not, Shmi, that's not how it works. It's like, Oh, okay. It wasn't in the picture, but come on. <laughs> Welcome to nature. Yeah. Babies we don't just, just materialize. Right, uh, right, right. 
so um well, maybe they do in sci-fi fantasy you know, uh, know maybe whatever. maybe he was born from the, <laughs> from the forest i guess and, and you know as soon as qui-gon said who is his father that all the fans in the audience were leaning in like yeah what's going on with that <laughs> and then they're like oh there was no father I'm like oh sit back in their seats come on george don't play us like that <laughs> uh, well they did that same stuff on us in episode eight so yes they did Yes, they did. We'll see. It's up to you, JJ. Finish. You got to get an answer all our uh, pull, pull some uh, answers out of your mystery box and let us know what's going on. Uh, and of course, kind of in tandem with that is the the concept of midichlorians that really pissed fans off about how, you know, the force is this mystical energy that anyone can tap into. But, you know, it helps if you have it in your blood, I guess. And, and uh, I'll go back to what I said about, uh, you know, my birth of the love of the sci-fi genre. It, it was almost like midi chlorians made him seem like they were like Jedi or mutants. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that concept seemed very weird to me. Your, your blood's off. So that makes you special. Yeah. Really? Okay. That, that whole midi chlorian thing just kind of that, that threw me for a loop and they focused on it. Like they, they drove that point home and it's like, okay but then they brushed it off mm-hmm. yeah like they, they spent a lot of time during those those scenes you know his numbers are off the charts and blah, blah, blah. even master yoda uh, doesn't have that account that high or whatever right and, and they made a point to bring things like that up and then all of a sudden you know a half hour later we never hear many koreans again right so i i don't know that that whole concept seems very odd and out of place yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. I, I guess the idea is that people with midichlorian counts are more predisposed to, to using the force, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, it muddies waters that didn't need to be muddied in the first place. And I, I yeah, I, I'm glad that at least, you know, throughout this trilogy, he down, he, he, you could tell that there's a lot of course correction going on where, like, oh, midichlorians, they don't like that. I'll scratch that scene out of episode two. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jar Jar Banks, all right, you'll have a small but critical role in episode two. Mm-hmm. And then, like, no lines in episode three. I think he says, excuse me, at one point, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of that throughout this trilogy that you can tell yeah. he's, like, revising okay. his plan. Almost ready to, I guess we're almost kind of getting close to. The, the end of the Tatooine thing, but we have obviously the pod race, uh, mm-hmm. which was such a huge deal when this movie came out. It's probably one of the sequences that has been discussed the most aside from the lightsaber duel, which we'll get to uh, shortly. And, um, you know, they had video game. I had actually had star Wars racer revenge on PlayStation yep. two back in the day. So that was, that was a huge deal. Uh, I actually still think that sequence is pretty fun. I mean, it goes on probably a, a little bit too long, but again, there's all the fan service and that whole thing with Jabba the Hutt and Bib Fortuna and uh, the, again, the Tuscan Raiders. And I like the shots where it's basically the, the POV shots through the, through the canyons. I, I, what do you, you know, how do you feel that the, the pod race sequence has held up 20 years later? Well, I'll tell you, um, back during the late 90s, I think there was a very large NASCAR boom. Like, NASCAR was really, really popular at that point in time. So I kind of think that, um, you know, the pod race was like the desert version of NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got the, the, the fanfare and the, the, the parade of flags and representing this and representing that and, and all the different types of, of pods. 
the different uh, characters piloting those pods um, just kind of made it really fun. Um, you know, you, you've got the Bulba, who um, I equated to Jeff Gordon <laughs> at the time. Yeah. I don't know if you're a NASCAR fan or if, you, if you know, the listeners are equating it back to back in the day where he was he was your kind of lovable guy but he did what he needed to do in order to win the race um and that's basically what the was trying to do um and ultimately that uh you know screwed him in the end um spoiler alert that Zabulba doesn't win anakin does um but uh yeah i think that that whole sequence was, was really a lot of fun um and we mentioned about the video games and i remember i think it was uh, at a dave and busters that they actually had the video game where you sit in that oh yeah like anakin's yeah, yeah, like pod that. um and, and you're you're piloting the, the, the pod oh my god that game is so much fun um i, I seriously doubt it, it's still there i haven't been to dave and busters in a while but uh but that that whole sequence i think was just yeah, you, there was some fan service, like you said, with the, with the characters that you you saw at the at, at the race. Um, but yeah, it, the, the the point of view shot, the the panoramic shot, um, just made that whole sequence visually stunning. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, they they created like this movie spawned basically a pod racing culture like they they like all those characters of course got action figures but you yeah. could play as most of those the the, the racers from Bounty eve in the game like i could actually probably name like <laughs> three to five off the top of my head because i remember them oh, so yeah. vividly ben quadraneros and odie mandrell and odie mandrell yes it's like it's like yeah. off the top just because they make it such a point of building that into the scene of oh here's this person from malastare and this person like all like you know the the lineup of who's entering the race and everybody you know I, I, it's it is it is very much feels like nascar and we know that george lucas is a car guy and you know you can see that in everything going back to american graffiti uh yeah yeah. he likes you know that's that's his thing he's big into that uh and that's why the speeders look like kind of in in um kind of like convertibles or like hot rods and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing uh so so this feels very much playing into you know him indulging in his his love of cars uh, in a sci-fi fantasy world which is really fun and i i think it's it's probably one of the sequences in the film that um that has received the least amount of criticism in a lot of ways and it helps that jake lloyd is is mostly silent and just reacting during that <laughs> during that sequence but still uh i i think and the, the visuals really for the most part hold up so it's it's yeah. still uh largely a highlight i would say and oh, absolutely. Uh, and then yeah, of course he wins. No, no surprise there. Um, but I, I like I think the farewell moment with him and his mom. Um, I, Lloyd is is fine in there, whatever. Uh, but Brunella August really sells that, and they you know the the where she's saying be brave and don't look back. Again, yeah. really planting the seeds for every for his his turn to the dark side starts here basically. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's, yeah, I think Yoda brings up, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate. Um, the hate leads to suffering. And, and I think, yeah, him missing his mother right off the bat, but her saying, you know, don't look back really should have stuck with him. And I, he probably would have been a lot better off if he didn't actually listen to that line mm-hmm. that, you know, he dwelled on the past and he dwelled on missing his mother and he dwelled on what he was leaving behind. And that's ultimately what, yeah, like you said, what drove him to the dark side. 
Yeah, he even says in the scene, he's like, I don't want things to change. And I'm like, oh, there you go. That's that's exactly get you get like you're sure good yeah pretty, pretty much pretty much and that's why you know they make a lot of you know i'm good jumping slightly ahead but they make a big to do about uh if you know if he was in born in the republic they would have identified him earlier uh with anakin and with luke they say oh we can't train him he's too old because of this kind of attachment uh in, in episode two they talk about uh you know attachment is forbidden you can't really like fall in love because again it plays into this whole thing so so again so like you there's a lot of really good ideas that Lucas has in the philosophy of the Jedi and in Anakin's, uh, you know, turn that, uh, that, that plays out really well. It's just not, it's just not executed as well as it should have been, I guess. Yeah. I agree with that. So, um, okay. So he leaves and then we get the, 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 uh, really the first real proper introduction to Darth Maul. Uh, during the lightsaber duel with Peter Serafinowicz doing the voice and Ray Park. I I don't know if it's the design or just the the sheer fact that we haven't really seen this kind of uh, acrobatics and choreography in lightsabers until he entered the picture. Uh, you know, you go to A New Hope and it's it's an old man and uh, uh, another uh, an- another mm-hmm. slightly younger but like cyborg man who could barely move s- slapping <laughs> sticks together and then here it's like flipping and all this other stuff what are your thoughts on Darth Maul and kind of the uh, the, the force pun intended that he's become like, you know it, it's exactly what you, what you said it, it was a different kind of villain it was a different energy behind him um like you said you know in episode four you know you've got two old guys you know who are you know clanging lightsabers together and you know what we do but then you you've got this new villain who's all over the place and you know he's got this the double-edged lightsaber which is something that is totally new um and you know people it blew their minds you know how can he have this this weapon this this new confounded weapon and um you know, and the red just made him that much more menacing. Um, the horns on on his head, and and just the the overall, I want to say creepiness to him. But he moved so quickly, you didn't know like what his next move was going to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that just made him so much more of an exciting villain. Uh, I like what he brings to the saga here and, you know, the fact that he looks very demonic. Uh, It's, you know, you, you, the most we've gotten has been uh, a wrinkled little guy in a hood and a, Mm -hmm. a, you know, a scary robot mask basically with Vader and the breathing, Mm -hmm. which is obviously iconic in its own way, but it's, it's not, it's, it's something about the, the Darth Maul design that's very visceral. And like mm-hmm. he feels like he stepped out of a way more intense movie, uh, and then shows yeah. up in this in this PG space adventure uh, with with Jar Jar Binks like across the way. You know, it, it's <laughs> he feels like he came from something much more serious. Um, and and I think that that's you know it's it's smart that they they doubled down on that in the uh, expanded universe and and really filled in the gaps because ultimately I think I think introducing such a cool character and then dispatching him rather quickly maybe not the smartest move we could have had him in in episode two instead of uh, instead of Dooku or something or some even though I love Dooku too so that, but that's totally different energy and totally different vibe that he gives off obviously yeah oh definitely. So from there, we move into Coruscant, 
which is obviously one big city, and we get lots and lots of space politics, uh, where we really get, I guess, a, a better look at Palpatine pulling the strings, and uh, and we get. I really like elements of this, and mostly the design elements. Like, I love the the fact that this is huge metropolis. Um, I love the design of the Senate and the way that that plays in at the end of Revenge of the Sith is so much fun. Uh, oh yeah. I, those scenes do feel, I can, I think, kind of stilted, probably more than a lot of the other movies because everybody is on formality and everybody's speaking in sort of a monotone. But I, I like, I, I think it, it's valuable because it does lend some insight into how Palpatine is is presenting uh, options to to Amidala and how he's. I guess this is what the Sith are known for, how he's clouding her mind and, uh, mm. and, and kind of getting under her skin and, and obviously, you know, m- manipulating the situation to, to get himself elected chancellor by the end. So uh, what do you, what do you, how do you feel about the, the space politics of it all as portrayed in the Coruscant section, which is mostly just, there's mostly the, the Senate and then um, the Jedi council. Well, with the, the Senate, um, you know, you walk in, you know, the camera allows you to, to, to walk in and, and sit in the, the pod with, you know, the, the folks from Naboo. Uh, but you realize just how big of an audience that Palpatine's really trying to get his hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, in, in, in this movie in particular, he's, he's manipulating Padme, he's manipulating, uh, you know, her in order to get the power that he ultimately desires. Um, he's just using her as the avenue to get there. Um, you know, once he finally, you know, becomes chancellor, he's got his grip on a whole lot of, of, of people and a whole lot of star systems and a whole lot of planets once he gets that role. And that, you know, obviously that was his ultimate goal. And the CGI of that room, it's just, it's so grand. And, you know, we're, we talked about the politics, you know, that, that kind of led up to this, but you, really see it and really kind of go oh wow what's he getting in you know what's he going to do once he gets his hands on everybody Mm -hmm. um you know just the scale of of what it is that he can ultimately do I, i think is just crazy the way i see it is that everyone else is really playing checkers and sidious has this like decades long game of chess playing out he's like all right step one become a senator and <laughs> step two become chancellor and then 20 30 40 years later i'll have a death star i'll have uh, an apprentice i'll be all set and running the game you know what i mean like he's he is is like it's the most patient <laughs> plan to conquer the universe that i've ever seen because yeah. it takes decades for him for this really to come to fruition. Uh, and, and as you said, I think you realize the true scale of it uh, in that in that scene. The amount of the, the little pods, and there's fan service in there too, where oh, you've yeah. got the, 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 the pod of uh, the, the ET creatures, and I believe there's a pod uh, representing Kashyyyk and the Wookiees, and um, you, you get a lot of fan service there too. Um, it kind of pays homage to, to you know, other characters in, in I guess Spielberg's world too. Like I said, the, the scale of it, you just it it, it kind of hits you that yeah, he he's got his hands on something pretty big here. Mm-hmm. And it's that's actually kind of a good uh, transition because Qui Gon thinks that he's has stumbled on something pretty big here with 
Anakin and, and the fact that he sees him as a virgin in the forest. He thinks that he could bring balance, which, you know, you could still argue one way or another. And I do feel like in a way to bring this saga together, I do feel like that balance is a very loaded term that will play into the rise of Skywalker. And I feel like that, that question of balance that's raised here, we probably still haven't really gotten the, the final statement on what that means to bring the force into balance. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping that that kind of gets tied up in, in episode nine, you know, to, just to kind of bring everything finally full circle and understand what that actually means. What does that prophecy mean? You know, was the prophecy Anakin Skywalker? Right. Was the prophecy Luke Skywalker in the prophecy way? Mm-hmm. Um, or even, you know, Ben, you know, it, who who is the prophecy and why how are we getting that balance and i think so i really hope we kind of get that in episode nine i'm not banking on it but uh it, it's something it's a plot point i think that uh, really should be touched yeah yeah i think so too and um because you know to the jedi obviously the jedi and the sith are both looking at it from their perspective well we want the sith to rule and the jedi are think that balance is if they're all jedi but i'm you know if they're all jedi and there's no sith that's not balance either so that's not uh, balance right yeah, yeah. it's the, the universe just keep flip-flopping out of balance so they say that anakin's too old can't, can't not going to be trained and one thing that i've noticed that took me a while to realize this uh even though i've seen this movie a million times that when mace windu says uh no he will not be trained Anakin, like you can tell, he's sort of squinting like angrily in Mace Windu's direction, and he's got kind of this like seething like look to him. But you could tell that he's like, one day I'm going to be in a position where I could save you, or I could, <laughs> I could help a Sith yeah. kill you, and maybe you know, maybe I'll, you know, we'll see what happens, buddy. Um, like this, it's this is one of the only moments where I think Jake Lloyd actually does really good performance in this scene where he's reacting to that news. I, have, did you ever is that something that you ever noticed before? I, I don't think I really picked up on it right away, but I, I did pick up on it later on. Um, that, that yeah, he kind of gives him a scowl as if to say, "Well, who yeah. the hell are you, buddy? You know, you're not the know-all and all be-all. There's twelve of you on this council. You're just one dude." Yeah, exactly. It's it's not fair. It's all Obi Wan's fault. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's just that's just it. You know, I think that ultimately, um, like you said, he he started his turn to the dark side just the moment he stepped away from his mother. But I think hearing those words come out of Mace Windu's mouth, he's like, "Okay, mm-hmm. I'll show you." There's a certain uh, and there's a certain arrogance to the Jedi too that it, uh, which I was people have commented on, but I was so happy that they mentioned in Last Jedi because and you see in this movie they they have in this movie and then the rest of the prequels like they're so confident oh you know it's no big deal we'll figure out the mystery of the Sith and they're like oh that couldn't have happened without us seeing it and, you know there's there's this there's this unwillingness to own up to their own flaws. Uh, that really it carries out throughout throughout this prequel that the Jedi Council are kind of a bunch of dicks that they think they know everything, yeah. but they're they're because they're sitting at the top of that tower just like uh, completely oblivious to everything else that's going on around them. And, and Yoda even mentions that you know hard to see the dark side is. Yeah. Well, if it's hard to see, take a little more time and try to dig into it, guys, because <laughs> right they're pulling the wool over your eyes left and right. Exactly. Exactly. So. Eventually, Pump, uh, Amidala decides to go back to Naboo. She's like, all right, there's too much space politics for me. You take over, uh, Senator. I'm heading out. And then we basically get a uh, we basically get a quiet moment with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan that I, I like that because it, it brings closure to that 
that uh, dynamic that I mentioned earlier that we don't really see enough of in this movie and they don't really get a chance to discuss their, you know, the time that they've spent together, presumably a decade plus um, training from this point on because it's pretty much all battle. Uh, and did you think that, the, what did you think of the, that scene? And then I guess the, the way that, um, Amidala brings together the Naboo and the Gungans. Um, the Naboo and the Gungans, I think was, was the, yeah, they, they, they've got this, this common enemy. They, they need to work together. And you know, the Naboo, she pretty much says, you know, my people are not warriors, mm-hmm. but we need somebody who knows what they're doing. We, we know some, somebody who can help. And they they have to basically recruit these dungeons to kind of fight the war for them. Um, you know, yeah, their their battle takes place you know out in the field, and it's supposed to be the a distraction in order to to get the you know uh, Amidala and you know her first mates, for lack of better words, uh, you know, in into the the city to to get the viceroy. And and it's interesting because from this point on, the film basically segments into uh, quadruple battle climax. So you have, uh, as you mentioned, the Gungans and the Trade Federation. That's the big CG battle, uh, which you see that influence in a lot. Like even watching um, Avengers: Infinity War specifically, you you yeah. see that that this feels like the first example of a big CG army facing off against other CG characters. Um, yeah. And, you know, the visuals here were Oscar nominated because that hadn't really been done on that scale before creating that yeah. world. And of course, Jar Jar ends up, you know, fighting by accident, basically. So he's doing his like, he's, uh, a, bomb- he's a bombad general. Come yeah, on. Apparently <laughs> he's uh, he's, he's like a, a slapstick warrior as it were. Um, and then we get, uh, Anakin also. So Anakin and Jar Jar are basically like their battles are, are basically comedies of errors where he's like, right. oops, oop, uh, what does this do? Oh, not that button. And, and by by accident destroys the uh, the Trade Federation, I guess, you know, the, the main starship. Um, right. What are, what are your thoughts of these <laughs> two of the main characters uh, basically saving the day because they just stumbled into the right cockpit slash battlefield, I guess. Right. Well, going back to the, the Gungans versus would come out of that one ship and they're just, they're lowered down layer by layer by layer. And they all stand up at that same time is so freaking cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is. The, the special effects in that is just, that's it just, that gave you chills. Um, and with, with Jar Jar, dumb luck stupid dumb luck that he just, you know, he's throwing the, the boomers into the, the, the tanks and, you know, electrocuting the battle droid. And then the, the tank crashes. And then he's, you know, pulling the, the, the boomers out of the, the one trailer for lack of better words. And, uh, you know, and, and knocking out a whole bunch of, uh, of vehicles and, and droids then too. It's, then he gives up. <laughs> Might give up. Might give up. <laughs> But going back up to Anakin, Anakin, uh, Anakin kind of blew up the Trade Federation ship very similarly to the way that Luke blew up the Death Star. Mm-hmm. It was from the inside out. Um, so I think that that kind of homage um, was kind of cool. Um, once he realized what he did, he's like, okay, I got to get out of here. And then, you know, once he gets out, the rest of the, the squadron's like, hey, uh, that's one of ours, and that ship's blown up, and hey, we just accomplished our mission. Yay! <laughs> Who is this kid? You know? Yeah, exactly. It was so cool. 
but you, you mentioned about the the other battles that are going on, and, and uh, I know you kind of want to get into the lightsaber battle between Obi Wan, Qui Gon, and uh, and Darth Maul. Kind of going on an opposite end of the the CGI, I kind of found where the the lightsaber battle had a lot of flaws, the green screen flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really watch that scene close, you can really tell where I think they kind of got sloppy in the cleanup in the post-production um, where the, the background's even kind of flurry. Um, and that's just, that's the film critic. And we just kind of, right, really right. stupid that. Um, but that, that's one of the scenes where I kind of, yeah, it was an epic battle and, and the, the choreography and then like favorite battle itself is, is crazy, insane, uh, good fun. Um, you know, Ray Park is, is a, a martial arts genius, but I think that the effects kind of drew a little bit away from that for me, mm-hmm. where I think it's, uh, yeah, it, it, was an, it was an epic battle and it, it had a lot of meaning and a lot of, uh, of energy behind it, but it almost kind of got distracting. Um, and I, the thing I didn't notice, you know, when I first saw the movie, I think it's kind of over the years of seeing it on, on DVD and then Blu-ray and then on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. Where I kind of watch it and go, oh, I really never noticed that before. But boy, that looks bad. Um, you know, I expect kind of explore, I expect more of ILM. You know, but uh, it, it's more where I think they're kind of in the where there's um, the the towers of I guess a light, the energy of some sort. Yeah, some kind of um, reactor. That, I that think. Room, right. Yeah, that that area there um, is is a little sloppy. But yeah, once you kind of get into where there's those. those uh, the laser doors for, I guess, if you want to call them. Um, then after that, it, it, I think it, it kind of, the effects kind of don't bother me as much. Mm-hmm. But the, the couple of scenes before that, um, I think were kind of sloppy. Yeah, I could see that. I think, I mean, with that sequence in particular, you can tell that they really focus so much more on the actors and the choreography and, and the, you know, the way that John Williams score and obviously Duel of the Fates. Oh, so awesome. Yeah. Uh, One of, one of the best, I think one of the best pieces in the saga, I would say, pieces of music, uh, which they reused again in, in uh, episode three. And uh, I mean, it it just seems like a good, a good enough moment uh, as any to, really praise what John Williams did in this movie, not just with Duel of the Fates, but like there's so many, he had to create a, a Naboo theme. He, uh, Anakin has a theme in here that, that is really, really beautiful. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people focus so much on Duel of the Fates that they don't really listen to the rest of the score. Like, like he's, he's has, I don't know. He, he created another world within this world that he had already created musically, if that makes sense. Definitely. Uh, I couldn't Star Wars without John Williams. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just he—he he just knows how to speak musically, and and it just the man's a genius. And John Williams is a god. <laughs> yeah, and and I think uh, you know that the duel of the the duel of the fates battle is really his. his it's, it's really his moment to shine in this film, like his most obvious moment to shine. Um, that right. battle, the choreography at Bray Park, as you mentioned, who was an X-Men right after this and she'll, uh, Sleepy Hollow, right. Uh, I think right no, around the right after this also around the same time. Yeah. yeah. Same year. Uh, he fights with such ferocity and, and both him and Obi-Wan have, especially after Qui-Gon, uh, is killed. 
Obi-Wan just has has this this burst of energy and that to me is like the most intense moment of the fight because it's the emotion is running high uh, because of Qui-Gon and that's also to me when the the Obi-Wan Kenobi that we love is really born it's, it's oh, yeah. in that moment when he sees his master killed that's where he grows up he stops <laughs> he stops being the like uh the whiny 20 something i guess that he was at the beginning of the movie and literally picks up his his master's weapon yeah yeah and 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 in no time flat you know slices Maul in half i mean the 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 quickness of that um basically adrenaline rush force rush whatever you want to call it um that there there was there didn't need to be another battle you know, that, you know, Qui-Gon's gone. Here's what I need to do. And it's done. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing to it. And there didn't need to be. It was that simple. Um, and, and that, you know, you, you watched Obi-Wan watch, you know, Maul fall down that chute. And he's like, yep, it is done. And now he needs to, he knows he needs to move on and he, what he needs to do. And he needs to train Anakin and he needs to, you know, get his, his rank of master and and he he walks away with purpose mm-hmm. yeah maul starts tumbling down that shaft and it's like no, definitely not going to see that guy in this in the story anytime soon ever again or so we thought <laughs> yeah exactly or so we thought <laughs> exactly uh but but it also you know seeing his his master who's essentially a father to him at that point seeing him you know be killed right in front of him where he couldn't help him. And that the fact that training Anakin is his dying wish. You, it, you buy the fact that this like upright, well, we got to do what the council says that this young Jedi would flip to honor his, his master's, uh, his master's dying wish. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess pick up a little bit of Qui-Gon's defiance that Yoda senses him in, in him in that scene there. Uh, so I, I love that. That's, that's to me, cause there's always in, in every other movie other than this one, Obi-Wan has a little bit of, of edge to him. There's a little, you know, there's like a playful, uh, like sort of, sort of almost sassy undertone to a lot of his behavior. <laughs> even in, even in episode, uh, even in episode four, there's a little bit of that going on. So I feel like this is where he really, he really inherits that from, from Qui-Gon and, um, and yeah, McGregor is from this point on McGregor is so great in the part, uh, in the, in the other films. So, uh, it, it's yeah. it's nice to see that that Obi Wan kind of comes to fruition uh, in that moment, and uh, of course the uh, Amidala thing. And so they get it. They get the Viceroy. They're gonna they're gonna redo the treaty, and it's really it's it's funny because uh, Panaka, Captain Panaka, says, "Oh, I think you can kiss your trade franchise goodbye." But it, it seems like they're still they're still you know in charge of stuff in the next movie. So I guess there weren't really no repercussions in that. Um, I guess it's the benefit of having a Sith Lord uh, running the galaxy. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Did, did much change with the Trade Federation? Not really. Yeah. Um, did they have the stronghold over Naboo anymore? It kind of didn't seem that way. It, it seemed like when you know, in episode two, they're going to go back to Naboo, that there is quite the, uh, the turmoil and the tension uh, that there was you know, in episode one. Um, but but yeah, there's there's no repercussions for guys like that. I mean, you know, slime balls are slime balls. Yep, they're gonna get what they want whenever you know how they want it. And they'll, like you said, with the Sith Lord running running things, par for the course. <laughs> In, in, a, in a corrupt galaxy like this. So 
we we the film ends with a, a big celebration and there's peace between the Gungans and Naboo. But right before that is the more interesting ending, which is the uh, Qui Gon's funeral. Which even when I right before like before I saw this movie, I know that the track on the soundtrack is Qui Gon's <laughs> noble end. So I was like, dude. Uh-huh. Don't tell yeah, me that. I, I, is, it, is Qui Gon's double end, or is it actually called Qui Gon's funeral? That's um. I think. It, and I think they one they, of the two. Uh, maybe Qui Gon's noble end is the moment where he gets killed, and then there's Qui Gon's funeral right after. But either way, yeah, it's a spoiler. Either, either sound- way, spoiler alert. <laughs> and then, and I know that the soundtrack and the book both came out about three weeks before the movie actually came out. Right. Um. And I, I think they've kind of learned uh, by doing that that um i don't know if for episodes two and three if these things came out before before the films actually hit but i know at least for the the sequel trilogy the soundtrack and the book are not released until that movie's actually Mm -hmm. um that we've actually kind of got into a a habit of what after we go see uh the movie we ended up at at walmart buying the soundtrack right after we finished watching this (laughs) um for these last two um, and then the book, like the, the novelization, doesn't even come out until weeks after the the film came out. But uh, but I, yeah, like I told you before, that I, I had actually read the book before seeing the movie, and did that obviously spoilers. You know, I I knew what was what was going to go on. Um, that I, I think they've learned their lesson to not do that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I just just in case I was this is 20 years ago, but obviously it's it still burns me a little bit just in case I because I listen to scores a lot when I'm writing or, or you know, whatever doing on the computer. So I, <laughs> I did not look up the Avengers Endgame score until I saw the movie, just in case there were spoilers in there, because uh, it's as simple okay. as there aren't really, but it's as simple as just not to, you know, go with the Michael Giacchino route where all his tracks are like puns, things like that. I like that better. You don't have to you yeah, call that a, a noble end or something you didn't have to be like Qui-Gon's gonna die is what you might as well have titled it yeah um, but I, I like that we uh, we learn in that scene that uh, the funeral pyre that Luke has for Vader that that's I guess sort of a, a Jedi Jedi funeral uh, because the Qui-Gon's funeral here very much um, is calling that to mind uh, and of yeah. course we get the the hint of uh, Obi-Wan training Anakin the master and the apprentice, which was destroyed and that whole thing. And it's like, boom, the phantom menace. It's like, he's right there guys to turn yeah. around. Can I get your heads out of your asses out of the Jedi temple? See some of the world. <laughs> it's not that hard. He looks, he looks evil. Look. And then, and the camera even pans. I, I believe the last person that the camera focuses on before yeah. the scene changes is Palpatine. Yep. Yep. And uh, so I love the way that 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 sets up the, you know, the relationship with Anakin and Obi-Wan. We even see Anakin with the little Padawan braid uh, in the next scene in the, in the celebration. Um, so that's, you know, it, it's it's I think overall very it's a satisfying way to end the film. It's a hint at what's to come. And even though there are a lot of elements of it that I think don't work overall i still i mean i still enjoy watching it there are moments that make me cringe but uh there's other stuff that's really cool and and um you know that little little details that plant the seeds for what comes to fruition later on in episodes two and three so did we is there anything in the movie we didn't cover i know the conversation went much longer than we intended i guess we had a lot more (laughs) i guess we had a lot more to dig into so it's going to be it's going to be fun for me trying to edit this down a little bit uh yeah good luck buddy sorry (laughs) (laughs) it's all good um did we touch on anything did we miss anything that we wanted to mention about the movie or want to just 
Um, no, it's just to wrap up some general thoughts. Um, you know, it was a, a, a well-rounded ensemble cast. I think that, you know, you, it was a, enough of, uh, you had a little bit of a star power. You had enough of, of the BNC level actors that, uh, that kind of rounded things out. You, and, and you had your classic folk here, your folks have come back from the original trilogy, uh, with the, the obvious one. It, it told a story that, Obviously, we all wanted to know. Did it have its again? Did it have its flaws? Sure, um, but ultimately, it's a good movie. It's yeah. a good Star Wars story. You know, the, the critics can pan it all you want, but um, you know, I still enjoy it. If it's on TV, I will still watch it. If I'm bored, I will still throw the soundtrack on, you know, my iPod, or I will still grab the Blu-ray and, and, and throw it in and, and have it, you know, playing. It, it, it's one of those movies I can still go back to and still enjoy 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. And ultimately it, it, when it comes right down to it, it's still star Wars. So I, that's why yeah. I don't, I mean, if you don't like it, don't watch it. If you know, it's, it's, it's a part of why it makes watching films for me, like very rarely would I watch a movie and say that, uh, that it was a complete waste of my time, first of all. And so this mm. movie, even though it has its flaws, there's a lot of good stuff in it. And I think some people that write it off because of, you know, Jake Lloyd's performance or because of Jar Jar or whatever. I mean, I think they need to watch it a little more closely. And there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff in here. But for some people, it's not the original trilogy, so it's never going to measure up. They have this ridiculous bar that that no other Star Wars film is ever going to hit. So it's like, you know, right. well, sorry, then I guess these movies aren't for you. Uh, but for the rest of us, there there is a lot of enjoyment to be had from them. So I, uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this one. And I'm, now I'm even more excited to, to have subsequent conversations about the next films. Um, yeah. So, uh, Kimberly, thank you so much for coming on the Crooked Table podcast. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Absolutely. Hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Um I accept all, you know, uh, my, my stuff's open, so you don't have to, like, private message me or anything. My Twitter and my Instagram are, are open for fair game. You can also follow my work on Monkey Spring Robots and popfaction.com, both websites. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, look forward to, to uh, wrapping with you again soon. I know we have a couple other movies that we were, we were thinking about uh, getting together to discuss and maybe the next time we won't take two hours to do it <laughs> <laughs> well star wars is kind of it's yeah everything has to be contextualized and so it's like well that in episode two yeah. play that, or whatever so but it was a lot of fun yeah yeah for sure i know you'd mentioned i think one you mentioned was ferris bueller's day off yes that would be yeah, a lot of ferris fun bueller's day off, um is actually my favorite movie of all time i oh, can recite that movie uh, I had a lot of fun uh, talking Star Wars with you, and Same. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Absolutely. We'll definitely have to have you back. In the meantime, thanks uh, so much for coming on. This was uh, so much fun. Yes, I had a blast. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Kimberly. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little K-E-D.